Good morning. Our uh, reading this morning comes from Ecclesiastes 9, 1 through 12. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garment be always white, let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love, all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. Because that, because that is your portion in life and your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Shoal to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. May the Lord add understanding to the reading of his word. Let's lift up our prayer together. Father, we thank you so much for everything you have blessed us with, especially in Christ Jesus. And we thank you that we can come directly to you through the mediation of our Savior. We thank you that we have all of the benefit of being firstborn children with all the expectation that brings. And so we do long for your return. Lord, in this present time, we have many among us who have trouble. And Lord, I pray that we would truly be those who mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. And as you add more to our number, we find that we daily have reason to mourn and daily have reason to rejoice. And so, Lord, we give you praise. We're so thankful for the healthy young ones. We're so thankful uh, for new marriages getting started. Lord, we're so thankful for the growth that we're seeing in sanctification. And we mourn together, Lord, for those who have new negative diagnoses, those who the outlook looks grim, those who are suffering loss of loved ones. Lord, we pray for them that you would be their portion and that your church would bear under their burden with them. Cause us to truly be your body, for the sake of your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. 
They say you get weepy in your old age. And I don't know if I'm actually supposed to be there yet, but here we are. Ecclesiastes. Uh, oh, before I start, there is lots of food for lunch. So if you can change your plans to stay with us for lunch, please do. At first brush, Ecclesiastes comes off pretty pessimistic. Uh, and the beginning of chapter 9 is maybe the most pessimistic message in the entire book, maybe the Bible. Uh, death comes to all. It doesn't matter if you act righteously or religiously. It will not save you from death, which uh, in this cynical tone of Ecclesiastes is a fate worse than life. There is a a bumper sticker. It's not a very nice one. It essentially summarizes these verses. Uh, Life is a dog, insert expletive, and, and then you die. This is essentially the message of the first half of chapter 9. Life is rough, and then you die. There is an unnatural horror to death, a great evil under the sun, and it it comes to us all. You can't outrun it, no matter how much you live off kale and kombucha, no matter how many medicines you take, no matter how many diets you try, no matter how many injections, no matter how dedicated to your workout program, Death is the great leveler, canceling out everything we do and everything we try to accomplish. All our human effort is not the ultimate factor in whether we die or live. Effort, in the end, has nothing to do with it. There are fit young people whose hearts give out, and there are chain smokers who outlive them. I remember one time watching an interview with the world's oldest man at that time, and he credited his longevity to his frequent walks to the store for beer and cigarettes. But for all its cynical realism, Ecclesiastes does not counsel despondency, but demands joy. We are told for a fifth time here that the appropriate response to the reality which exists is to enjoy life and take pleasure in the good gifts God gives us. Food, drink, and work, along with the people we get to enjoy them with, even if it is only for a short time. A careful examination of the reality of things will not produce gloom and doom Christians, but a people whose joyful hope is evident, 1 Peter 3.15, in the way they celebrate and live their lives. Let's read verses 1 to 6. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. 
For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Once again, Ecclesiastes returns to the thought that people do not automatically get what they deserve. They may, in fact, Ecclesiastes 8.14, receive the exact opposite of what they deserve through their actions. And so because of this, it is not possible to use our circumstances to determine if God accepts or rejects us, whether he loves or hates our deeds, verse 1. It is all in God's hands. We can't know if what we are experiencing indicates God's love or hate. If godliness, then, is not a guarantee of prosperity or comfort, then we cannot look at our circumstances to determine if God is for us or against us. This reality runs in the face of the kind of foolishness that says, if you are faithful, then you will be prosperous. And those who claim that if you really love God or if you pray the right way, then you will be happy, healthy, and wealthy. Our circumstances and fate are not determined predominantly by our activity, but are found in the hand of God. This hand of God metaphor is used 200 times in the Old Testament to refer to the sovereign power of God, that God is in control, and the Christian's hope is in the hand of God, not in our endless activity. And so 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. See, this is to submit ourselves to the sovereignty of God, His sovereign hand in all things. We humble ourselves then, trusting Him that He will work things out in the right time. Verse 2 repeats the point that everyone, no matter what their character or lifestyle, will meet the same end, that is death. And along with this common destiny, even during life, both the righteous and the wise are by no means untouched by misery and folly. Ecclesiastes has already compared wisdom and foolishness, righteousness and wickedness, religion and irreligion, and in the end, the message is that people can avoid making things worse for themselves by right behavior, but they can never, by their choices, guarantee that things will go well. So there are really stupid things to do. You could make things worse, but you can't control so that only good things will happen. And this is a significant statement coming from an Israelite because it is essentially admitting that being an obedient Israelite really amounts to nothing at the end of the day. Regardless of sacrifices, oaths, and law-keeping, regardless of how moral or religious we are, we cannot stave off misfortune and death. These things are simply not in our control, but remain under the mighty hand of God. Everyone, regardless of merit, will die because our righteousness is imperfect, our wisdom incomplete, our religion insufficient. Ecclesiastes 9.3 makes it clear that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. 
and Romans 3.23, and that the wages of sin is death for all, Romans 6.23. Human death is so jarring because we were made to live. There is an explicit connection here with the fall. We have inherited corruption, sin, and death from our first father, Adam. And so, verse 3, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. Because I sin, death will come for me. Because you sin, death will come for you. And death does not always come in a nice way. It does not always come in the time that we would wish it to be. And nothing of our efforts can change that reality. Verses 4 and 5 introduce another relative better-than comparison using the ancient proverb, a living dog is better than a dead lion. (laughs) I love this. In the peanut comic strip, the dog Snoopy says, I don't know what this verse means, but I agree with it. (laughs) While we generally adore dogs in today's Western culture, especially me, In the ancient Near East, dogs were considered unclean, unwanted, and generally horrible animals. They are wild, live on garbage, and will eat cadavers if given an opportunity. And so the irony of the comparison is sharp. The the benefit that life has over death is that, verse 5, the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. So what is the relative benefit to living? To know that death is coming. The lion, the mightiest and noblest of beasts, has not this hope for he is dead, but the dog, the despised scavenger, has hope for he is still alive. He is able to contemplate his death. This is the same reason that we saw in Ecclesiastes 7 too, which says that a funeral essentially is better than a birthday party. The advantage is that the living still have a chance to reckon with the reality of death and do something about it. They can enjoy life as a gift, repent of evil, and live differently in the face of death. But no such possibility exists for those who have already died. Their opportunity to make the most of life has already passed. Now, it seems like a slim benefit, after all. The living have this over the dead. They can contemplate their deaths. Pretty dreary. It is against the backdrop of dark statements like this that the stark contrast of the joy theme in Ecclesiastes shines. So there's, I can't think of too much more of a dark statement in the Bible than it's kind of better to be alive because then at least you can contemplate your death. But what follows? So let's be sad. We could have an Eeyore moment now. No. Verse 7, go, eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to where you are going. 
Facing death has a way of making you enjoy life more. Death has a way of giving our heads a shake, making us appreciate what we have, or maybe I should say who we have still with us. This is now the fifth time in Ecclesiastes that the author has recommended joy, but this time the advice has turned into an imperative. Go. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Helplessness in the face of death should not lead to despondent apathy, but to joyful action. Seize the day for joy. Enjoy simple meals and celebratory ones. Food and wine are wonderful gifts from God, meant to bring us nourishment, but also pleasure, taste, variety, and the warming of our hearts. God gives us the gift of food and drink for us to enjoy as a means to worship Him, and with grateful hearts for His provision and His creativity. It is not a sin, might surprise you, it is not a sin to enjoy life. Many have been raised with a brand of Christianity which communicated that life is a drag and holiness is boring. Some of you were taught, if only accidentally, that holiness is found in abstaining from pleasure, that if it feels good or if it makes you happy, then it must be a sin, so quit it. Ecclesiastes teaches the exact opposite of such dreary and suffocating religion. God wants you to enjoy life as an outworking of enjoying Him. God is the author of pleasure. James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. It continues, verse 8, let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. In contrast with the familiar use of sackcloth and ashes as a sign of mourning, these are outward signs of joy, indicating festivities and celebration. So the the command is, go, enjoy your food, enjoy your wife, enjoy your work, and be in a constant mood of celebration. Our joy and contentment with God's good gifts should be visible to all. We are to be, as I said earlier, people whose joyful hope is evident. It continues, verse 9, Enjoy your life with the wife whom you love, all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. So in addition to food and wine, we are commanded now to enjoy wife and work. Now, the instruction is not limited to married men, but it picks up again the theme of chapter 4, verses 9 to 12, that God has blessed us with fellowship, and we have a limited time to enjoy it. So do. The, The point is that there's a limited window, a chance to do something now. Enjoy someone now, because who knows what tomorrow will bring. To enjoy God's good gift is a command and one with a shelf life. Growing up in church 
and attending Christian school and college, I heard it often quoted in verse 10, whatever you do, do it with all your might. I don't ever remember them finishing the quote, though. It's because you will die soon. <laughs> this life is vain. That is, hevel, a fleeting mist. There is no work or thought or wisdom in Sheol or the grave, the place of the dead. And so knowledge of this limited window should give us an urgency to accomplish things of eternal value. Knowing that time is short and nothing of this world will last. Colossians 3, 23 and 24 repeats this. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. And so what comes across in Ecclesiastes as cynicism is actually just realism. The author is just blatantly honest about the reality which exists. But notice it does not sink to despondency about life's troubles, nor does it offer superficial solutions, but it offers the wisdom to navigate both the joys of life and its hardships by being focused on living in the present. The problem is that instead of reckoning with death, today people live lives filled with distractions from life's hard realities. And acting as if they have an endless supply of days ahead of them, people fill them with a thousand distractions, and then we squander what little time we have left on immediate but insignificant concerns. Failing to contemplate death, as we do here in Ecclesiastes, will make you a foolish person. Neither should we live every day as if it were our last. This, too, is utter foolishness. If today was your last, then there would be no point of, in accomplishing anything of value. If today was your last, you would not go to work, pay your bills, study to learn, or any number of the things that we must do day to day. And so do not live every day as if it were your last. That is not what it says here. But do live as if you have a set number of days. Live as if you do not get an endless supply. Psalm 90 verse 12 says, So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Knowing that our days are numbered will help us keep from being careless with our relationships, indifferent to our labors, and distracted from the true joys of life. The crux of this entire passage is found at the end of verse 7. God has already approved what you do. There is a distinct Pauline flavor to Ecclesiastes. That is, many of these statements sound like the things which were written by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. It only goes to show that there's one spirit inspiring the words as they were written. There is a theme of salvation by grace alone, in which we are justified by faith alone to the glory of God alone. Man can only receive contentment, it says, as a gift from God, Ecclesiastes 3.13. I was wrong this morning, Sunday school class. And God has already approved of him and of his works before he does them. 
The, the believer is not struggling for acceptance. We are already accepted. And righteousness does not come from our own labor, but the works that are accepted by God are those which are the expression of thanksgiving and obedience to God who has saved us by his grace. For the unbeliever, the blessings of this life are a distraction from the true eternal reality. But for the believer, they are an appetizer, an appetizer of every heavenly blessing to come. In thanksgiving, we are to enjoy these temporary blessings to the full, to eat and drink for God's glory. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. From the beginning of the Christian tradition, one of the early pitfalls has been an ascetic tendency that understands true spirituality as abstaining from the good things God has given, such as food, wine, or sex, rather than the enjoyment of these things in thankfulness to God who has blessed us with them. And so Ecclesiastes helps us to see that true spirituality is to take pleasure in God's good gifts with thanksgiving in our hearts. But verse 7 is not a blank check of approval. We see once again Ecclesiastes' regular emphasis on fearing God and keeping his commandments, which we are to enjoy because God has already approved what you do. And so it is made clear that this enjoyment is to be done in ways that are consistent with God's instructions and values, not worshiping created things, but joyfully receiving gracious gifts from God's hand. Enjoy what God provides you to eat and drink. Enjoy your relationships. Enjoy your married or your single status. Enjoy throwing yourselves energetically into whatever work needs to be done. Ecclesiastes gives us God's very command to enjoy the everyday aspects of life which are granted to us by grace. We talked this morning in Sunday school about how one of the pitfalls that leads us toward discontentment and covetousness is that we think that we deserve more. When we realize that we deserve nothing, we deserve death and damnation, then we can, with thanksgiving, eat our plain food and drink our water. We can enjoy the times that are especially good and celebrate them as, as a gracious gift from God, not thinking that it ought to always be so. We can rightly enjoy the things that God has provided when we recognize the sovereignty of God and our utter failure to be able to deserve anything good. Finally, verses 11 and 12 underscore the message of verses 1 to 10. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Life's outcomes, other than death, are unpredictable. Good and bad come to all. We 
might reasonably expect the swift to win the race or the strong to win the battle, but time and chance interfere, it says, or simply the incomprehensible activities of God work things to His eternal purpose. God has determined, Matthew 20, 16, that the last will be first and the first last. And Matthew 25, 29, to everyone who has, more will be given. He is working all things for good, Romans 8, 28, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And so it is not necessarily those who are more able or gifted that reap the benefits of life. You know, how full of pride we would be if we thought that the blessing of God was because we were gifted or able. In fact, none of these statements are shocking at all to those who have received the genuine gospel, that God's elect are not chosen according to their talents or their abilities. Paul writes 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and 27, For consider your calling, brothers, Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Every time I start to feel pretty good about myself, I remind myself that God chose what was foolish in order to make him look good. Deuteronomy 7, 7 to 8 talks about Israel, why God chose Israel. It says, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were of the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. And so Paul writes, Romans 9, 16, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Ecclesiastes sounds so much like Paul because, like Paul, by God's own spirit, he came to recognize that human inability must drive us to rest in divine grace. Our utter inability forces us, as we see it, as we see this pessimistic scheme that we're totally unable, it drives us to rest in God's grace. Fit bodies, strong and fast, and wise and knowledgeable minds are good things in themselves, but they do not bring the control we seek. We do not determine our entrance into this world, and we have no power over our time of departure, verse 12. As the fish and birds are trapped when in the full vigor of health and activity, so man is snared in an evil time. What happens in life is beyond the control of our wisdom, beyond the control of our diligence or our skill. Ecclesiastes and other biblical writers remind us that the idea that we have any such control is a myth. Sure, the universe is an ordered place, and there are features of reality with cause and effect. But the universe is not a machine where we can just plug in the correct formula for living and enjoy the expected outcome. It is a personally created and governed space whose originator and sustainer is the living God. Biblical faith is not about control 
or about the manipulation of God so that he will do as we wish. Control and manipulation are at the very root of idolatry. Cause and effect will only get us so far in life. For beyond cause and effect, there is God who will not allow the idolatry of self ultimately to exist. The God of order brings chaos to life to remind us that we are not, in fact, gods who control the present or the future. Ian Proven writes, Every time a prediction fails, every time the swift do not win the race or, and the strong battle, every time our health breaks down or we find ourselves poorer rather than richer or we discover that we are miserable rather than happy, Every such occasion is a moment of grace and an opportunity to look reality straight in the eye. It is a moment in which we are helped to remember who controls the times. We are not in control. We desire to be, but every glimmer of it is false and pursuit of it is idolatry. God is in control. I wish that I had been taught Ecclesiastes when I was young because Ecclesiastes is the remedy to the word of faith heresy which paints believers as little gods who can master their destiny by actuated faith and positive confession. It also serves as a cure for the health and wealth counterfeit, making it clear that a person's circumstances in life provide no certain basis for determining God's favor. Against what is claimed in modern pseudo-Christianity, the Bible never promises that the righteous will receive good health and financial prosperity. It never ties faith and righteousness to the attainment of these things in any simplistic formula. While it is true that the way of faith and obedience to God is, in the end, the way to blessing and prosperity and that God's blessings can include health and financial prosperity, there is no promise or even example in all of Scripture of the faithful believer receiving only such things and avoiding illness, disaster, and death through religious devotion. There's no example. Not Stephen, not John the Baptist, not Jesus. To believe this is to believe something profoundly unbiblical, To teach it is to insult every Christian throughout the last past 2,000 years who has known illness, poverty, and misery. And to press it on the sick and the poor and the unhappy of the present day is to place a millstone around the neck of those who are already drowning. Rather than to offer them the genuine comfort and hope of the gospel. God is much more concerned to make us holy and to shape us in the image of Christ than he is to make us happy, rich, and healthy. 2 Corinthians 12, 9-10 says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when 
I am weak, then I am strong. The Christian faith insists that God is God and we are not. That God's ways in the world are beyond both our understanding and our control. That believers encounter all of the same troubles and in the range of human experience, even while God is present in our midst. Biblical faith is the radical abandonment of our whole being in grateful trust and love to God not something we practice out of self-interest. You see, this is the key difference between genuine Christianity and pretenders. Biblical faith is not practiced out of self-interest. Biblical faith says we have already received every heavenly blessing in Christ. Now we are responding to God's goodness. False pretenders False gospels say we live in such a way in order to gain this reward. Our reward, church, is God. He is our portion. And he gives himself freely to us, reveals himself in his word to us, and puts in us his spirit so that our will will eventually be one with his will. At the same time, Ecclesiastes reminds us that we don't express our trust and love to God with the wrong kind of self-denial. Offering our whole selves, Romans 12, 1, as living sacrifices to God is not to deny ourselves the ordered enjoyment of God's good gifts in thanksgiving. This is what this is all about. We actually worship God by ordered enjoyment of the good things he has given to us. That is moderation in many things, because many things become damaging and sinful outside of moderation. But asceticism or total denial of the good gifts that God says that he gives to us, like food and wine and our spouse and our work, These are our very worship to God, to enjoy them rightly, as they point us to him. Jesus came to offer himself as a sacrifice, not only so his people could have eternal life, but abundant life, John 10.10, which means living life to the fullest as it was meant to be lived. And church, we are called to abundant life now. Not everything heaven promises, Not everything we hope and desire for, but the best joy we could have now. With the best outcome set before us, could God alone knows what will work out for our good. And so he blesses us with this. Jesus came so we could have life abundantly. From the beginning, God meant for us to live the abundant life, eating, drinking, loving, and working to his glory. But we all joined in Adam's rebellion. And instead of using God's gifts rightly as a means to express gratitude and worship to him, we used the gifts in rebellious and harmful ways. Food becomes gluttony. Wine becomes drunkenness. Sex becomes adultery. 
and work becomes laziness or becoming a workaholic. We all have rebelled against God's good design, and a result, we are broken. Jesus defeated both sin and death at the cross through his resurrection. The good news is that Jesus came to redeem his people so that we can begin to live once again according to his good design. He did not just die and rise again to forgive our sins. He also died and rose to conform his followers to his image, Romans 8.29, which means a new empowerment by his own spirit to live according to God's design. Jesus also set for us a perfect example to live by. He came feeding people and turning water into wine. He came eating and drinking and was even falsely accused by the religious elite of being a drunkard and a glutton, Matthew eleven nineteen. Jesus came to pursue his bride, the church in whom he finds joy, Hebrews 12, 2. Jesus came to do the work given to him by his Father while the time was short, John 9, 4. See, in each of these things, Christ is our example for exactly what Ecclesiastes commands us to do today. Jesus overthrew the curse so that we can live redeemed lives in conformity to his image. Now, in Christ, we can live life to the full, eating, drinking, loving, and working in redeemed ways. And today, we see the first glimpses of eternal joy in churches that eat bread and drink wine with glad hearts, Acts 2.46. In marriages that reflect the gospel, Ephesians 5.22-32. And in workers who need not be ashamed, 2 Timothy 2.15. But Luke 12.43, at our master's return, we will be found doing his work. And so this, the second week of Advent, we remind ourselves that our Lord returns soon. And we must, and we must, <laughs> We must be found doing his work. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word, which is always a boon to us. It cuts right to the quick in the areas in which we have failed to honor you, failed to live in accordance with your command. It shows us the commands that we have forgotten or never known about. And it leads us to the way of life. Father, with your word, we also thank you for your spirit at work in us, without which we could not have softened hearts. We would not have a willingness to obey. And so, Lord, I pray that you would cause us, as we are renewed in our minds, to strive with all of your power that you so mightily work within us. Transform us, I pray. Many of us have sought to live 
lives in accordance with your word, and yet we are dour Christians, pessimistic and down on life. Forgive us, for we have lived the lie rather than the truth of your word. Lord, at times I have set a bad example, always having something to complain about, rather than always having something to share of the joy that you are working in me. Forgive me, O oh God. Transform us. Where here especially, it is so obviously for our good. May we celebrate the joy of our salvation today and enjoy the good gifts that you have provided. Having each of them point us to your ultimate goodness, the ideal in all things. We give you praise. Amen.